Great, thank you, Rob. Um, it's good to see everybody. Um, I recognize a lot of names and some faces, but um, I definitely don't know a lot of you. So uh, welcome and thanks for coming. Um, so tonight, I think uh, when Ajahn Nisibo and I um, were originally approached about giving teachings, we wanted to do something on uh, perhaps consecutive Thursdays or consecutive weeks, and we thought to maybe cover uh, the full base, the four bases of right speech. And um, Ajahn Nisibo is going to talk about uh, refraining from lying and refraining from uh, perhaps malicious speech. And I was going to do refraining from harsh speech and uh, refraining from idle chatter. But just over the last um, week or so uh, with things yeah, ramping up um, in Gaza and uh, yeah, all the violence around the world um, really felt like I'd like to go a bit more specifically into uh, what is right speech in times of war. And um, to frame that, I've we've got a Google Doc. And Rob, could you put that in the chat, maybe the link to that? And everyone can follow along. I'll also be um, screen sharing, but um, if you want to uh, kind of look ahead, then you're welcome to do that. So just as a general outline for what the evening will be like, uh, I'll speak for about uh, half an hour to start with. The evening will be sprinkled with several mini meditations. These will be times when I'll just turn off the share screen and we can just sit for uh, three, four, five minutes together around specific themes of embodiment. This is something which I feel is very important and it's a very useful tool uh, when relating to speech is how to uh, come back into our bodies when we're being triggered um, on a, on a cognitive level uh, being triggered in interactions. So these are all body-based. So we'll have a number of these mini meditations. Uh, I'll present the first half um, and then open it up to about 15 minutes of questions from people. So uh, you can store up your questions. You can put them in the chat and I can address them via text at that point, or you can raise your hand and ask point, ask questions then. Uh, and then after that 15 minutes or so, we'll uh, go back and present the second half of the main discourse, which I'll be discussing. Uh, and then there'll be a period of 15 minutes at the end for, for more questions. So when we talk about um, war, it's, uh, yeah, how does, how does one do this in, in a Buddhist context? Um, the first thing I wanted to bring people's attention to is this sutta, which uh, brings up this idea. I'll just read it. So it's addressed to monastics, to bhikkhus, and this is a significant point. So uh, one could make a good case, perhaps, that uh, this discourse is just for renunciants. This is just for people who've, uh, who are living a life which is separated from the world, um, and that it would not perhaps apply to uh, lay people who are living a more engaged life. Uh, and maybe someone might make the case that this is only for monastics at the time of the Buddha, that it wouldn't apply to modern monastics even, and certainly not 
uh, modern lay people. Uh, but I'll just read the sutta and see how it might apply to your situation. Uh, Bhante Analio, a very uh, well-respected scholar monk, uh, makes the case that when the Buddha refers to or addresses his audience as um, bhikkave, or that's the plural for monks, that that um, it's the vocative case. So this is basically an address. So, oh, you who are listening to me, although he'll say bhikkhus, there are suttas where there's obviously uh, bhikkhunis or female renunciates, as well as laymen and laywomen uh, in his audience. And he'll just use the singular word bhikkhu as a catch-all phrase. So he'll translate that term in suttas as practitioners. And you can take that to the extent that you find that it might be helpful. Um, so practitioners do not engage in various kinds of pointless talk. That is, talk about kings, thieves, ministers of state, talk about armies, dangers, and wars. Uh, then you've got a list of about 20 plus other topics of conversation, uh, which he says uh, should not be engaged in by uh, monastics specifically. Uh, for what reason? Because practitioners, this talk is unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life and does not lead to disenchantment, nibida, to dispassion, viraga, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, and to nibbana. Uh, it's, this is uh, a list of, I believe it's about 32 subjects, and it's not just in this sutta. Um, this list occurs a number of places, and uh, it is usually in being addressed to bhikkhus, but I've, before I ordained, I found this list uh, a helpful um, short list of topics of conversation to maybe put a question mark before before I start engaging in, in topics uh, such as these. Uh, is this really going to be uh, furthering the, the, the goal of my, my life? And I've known many lay people as well who've also find this to be a, a fascinating kind of checklist to, uh, or a mirror, you know, what I'm about to say, is this on that list? And why did the Buddha give this list? Um, so uh, the Buddha says, so don't talk about those things. But he didn't just say, that's not the end of the story. There's uh, more you can talk about and you should talk about um, practitioners. This is suffering. You should talk about this is the origin of suffering. <laughs> this is the cessation of suffering. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. That is, talk about the Four Noble Truths. Although in this previous passage, it's basically like the Buddha is cutting off so many different avenues for the way that most humans talk to each other most of the time, cutting off, it seems, uh, all just chit-chat. Um, but he opens this uh, almost floodgate that we can talk as much as we want about uh, dukkha and the cause of dukkha and the cessation of dukkha and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Uh, and that's great because that's huge. Uh, I believe that the Buddha said in a discourse in the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya, that uh, if you had four well-versed and knowledgeable uh, teachers who were very, very wise, very competent, uh, they could speak at length for a hundred years about the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the path leading to that cessation for a hundred years. And still, they wouldn't have even put an end. They wouldn't have put a, 
an end to how much one can uh, find insights into these four noble truths. So why is it that these are allowable? It's because practitioners, this talk is beneficial. It's relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to, <laughs> I had done some editing uh, of the translations. Um, revulsion is one translation for Nibida, uh, but Dischantment is another to dispassion, cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And the last little section says, therefore, an exertion should be made to understand yoga karaniyo. A, a yoga should be uh, applied. You should um, <laughs> yoke yourself to this, uh, this course of study of mental reflection. This is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is the uh, cessation. And this is the path leading to cessation. So I just bring that up as a um, something to uh, perhaps challenge what seems to be uh, being solicited so much, certainly on social media. Um, fortunately, I, most monastics, including myself, were not uh, in the thick of social media. But uh, being a student now, I do have the internet on a regular basis, which I didn't for most of my monastic life. But um, yeah, uh, so I do check the news and yeah, it seems like everyone has an opinion and everyone is being called to make, uh, make up their mind and even be, um, yeah, come down on one side or the other. And even if you do that, you come, come down on one side or the other of any of the numerous conflicts that are happening, uh, in, in the world today. Uh, you have people which, are not satisfied with that. And so you come down on, you know, both sides and uh, people. Yeah. It's um, yeah. The, there's so much nuance that goes into things and it's so hard to capture that in conversation. Um, so the Buddha here, at least suggesting to monastics to uh, sidestep, to go around, to perhaps not go into the thick of these different conversations on, uh, war and um, armies and kings or presidents or prime ministers of etc but instead focus on the right here right now of uh of yeah what is this dukkha what is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha right here right now in this body and hopefully we will go into um the case that bhikkhu bodhi makes a case that the four noble truths can be understood uh, both in a vertical dimension, and that's the dimension of our own bodies and minds. And that's generally how the Buddha is speaking about dukkha, looking into how the seeming I caused suffering for myself and um, what I can do to not do that. But there's also a horizontal dimension Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks of, which is the suffering of other beings and certainly uh, that comes in in droves when we speak about war. But as another um, just general framing about when we talk about speech in general, I find this quote from the Anguttara Nikaya, and uh, everyone who has the link can go to it in any of these blue uh, highlights or links that you can go and see the full discourse of. But uh, this is the only place, I believe, in the canon where the Buddha speaks about the overarching purpose of discussion, basically the, the purpose of speech in general. 
And this applies both to my spell, myself um, presenting here. Uh, it applies to uh, all of yourselves if you're interested in what the Buddha is speaking about. Um, and it's not just on the speaking end of things, the presenting end of things. Um, it's also on the listening end of things. So the discourse says, so for what, uh, for that, that is the purpose of discussion. That is the purpose of counsel, manta. That is the purpose of drawing near. That is the purpose of lending ear. That is the liberation of the heart, of the mind through non-clinging. Anubada chittasa vimoka. Vimoka, the liberation, the freedom, chittasa of the mind, of the heart, uh, without attachment, anubada, anubada. Upadana being clinging and attachment um, that comes right after craving independent origination. So <laughs> that is uh, significant and uh, powerful enough to actually pause and um, I won't stop sharing, but I would like to have one of these mini meditations that I'm uh, I've mentioned just to come back into the body and come back to the actual feeling in the heart and see if you can with eyes closed or eyes open unhooking from all of the cognitive Velcro that we're so enamored with. And even if you don't know how to do it, just letting the mind drop into the heart, the physical heart space behind the solar plexus in the chest. And from this heart space, just opening, that is, Sensing out, see if you can find any limit to awareness from this heart space. You might think you could feel the front of your chest or the touch of your clothing in the front or the back or the sides, and that's the end of the story. That's the extent of one's capacity for felt awareness, but the body seems to feel further than that. The tactile sensation just seems to blur out in every direction. And you can take this as a a simile for this liberation of the mind through non-clinging. So not clinging to perceptions of finiteness, just unclinging, disentangling, unattaching from conceptions of limitation. The liberation of the mind through non-clinging.
Okay. Um, so these mini meditations are meant to be intentionally brief. Um, there's a, an author who I really appreciate, a Buddhist teacher named Locke Kelly, and he talks about uh, how you know most people in modern psychology talks about peak experiences, P-E-A-K experiences um, in one's life or one's meditation practice. But he also speaks about, and we can conceive of these mini meditations as being P-E-E-K experiences. So I may have gotten those spellings mixed up, but uh, basically peeking into a mind, which is uh, a heart, which is, is free. So we'll do a number of these and they're abrupt. <laughs> We're on a, a serious um, yeah, discursive and discursive uh, train, thought train, uh, but it's it's very good. Uh, there can be this tendency when we're so cerebral and going into study as we are tonight um, to really become disembodied and literally to be leaning more and more forward, but to keep coming back into the body is really helpful. And it's uh, um, an especially good skill when we're going to this realm of speech, as we'll see. So the main focus of uh, tonight's conversation will be the discourse on the simile of the saw. So this is Majjhima Nikaya number 21. And you can go to various translations by I.B. Horner, uh, the great aunt of Ajahn Amaro, the amazing um, Pali scholar, Isolin B. Horner, and Bhante Sujato, um, and maybe some translation by me. So it's a really great, it's it's such a rich sutta. We won't have uh, really be able to dig into all of what it it speaks to tonight, but I've just highlighted a couple of uh, particular uh, passages, which we'll go to. So the first um, comes just after a rather famous and well-known metaphor that the Buddha gives. The Buddha talks about a well-known lady of town named Videhika and her servant named Kali. So Videhika is well-known throughout the district. She's well-praised. People say she's very kind and gentle and easy to talk to. And Kali is a very skilled and uh, normally very easy to get along with servant to Videhika. But at some point, Kali gets the idea, uh, is Videhika, Mistress Videhika, really kind and gentle? Is she really so sweet and even-tempered? Uh, or is it just because I'm so good at my work? So she starts testing her, starts waking up later and waking up later and waking up later. And after some time, uh, Videhika, basically, the story is much uh, more elaborated in the actual sutta, but eventually Videhika has had enough and takes a rolling pin and beats Kali over the head with it and Kali's bleeding and then goes about town saying, so here's how sweet and modest and even-tempered uh, Mistress Videhika was. And then a bad report spread about Mistress Videhika. And similarly, that that's the that's the metaphor, that's the story that the Buddha gives. And um, the Buddha says that uh, a practitioner, and here we go to the text that we have on the screen, a practitioner may be sweetest of the sweet, the most even-tempered of the even-tempered, the calmest of the calm, so long as they don't encounter any disagreeable speech. But it's when one encounters disagreeable speech that you'll know whether someone is really sweet, sorata, really even-tempered, nivata, and calm. Um, 
and we might go into some of this Pali at some point. Um, but the Buddha continues, I don't say that a practitioner is easy to speak to. Suvacha or sovacha, we will go into this Pali term, if they make themselves easy to speak to only for the sake of getting what one's what what one wants. That's the gist of it. Literally, because he's speaking to um, monastics, um, he doesn't say someone's easy to speak to uh, and makes themselves easy to speak to just for the sake of robes, alms, lodgings, and medicines, medicines for the sick. These are the famous four requisites of a monastic. Um, but literally, it's just getting what you want. Why is that? Because when someone doesn't get what they want, uh, they're no longer easy to speak to. But when a practitioner is easy to speak to, purely because they honor, respect, revere, worship, and venerate the Dhamma, then I say that someone is easy to speak to. So uh, I wanted to highlight this quality of being suvacha or soracha. It comes up in a number of different ways, suvacha, sovacha, sovachasa. Uh, but literally it means vacha is uh, speech and su is uh, beautiful or kind or good, like sukha is the opposite of dukkha. So um, here we've got uh, good or easy to speak to. Often you'll see it translated as uh, easy to admonish, which is um, a monastic virtue. But I feel this term being easy to speak to is one which uh, is yeah more applicable. And it's a virtue which is praised all over the place in uh, the Pali Canon. Uh, it comes up in the uh, Metta Sutta. So um, when it said that patience, uh, yeah, being straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, this being uh, easy, easy to speak to, it comes up in the Metta Sutta there and in the Mangala Sutta, the Discourse on the Highest Blessings. Um, as being a highest blessing or being as a prerequisite for metta practice. But it's something which probably most people here tonight won't know this word, uh, but it's a good one to learn even in the Pali because it's praised so highly by the Buddha. And uh, it's a quality which is in, uh, unfortunately, short supply when what's praised in modern discourse and even in modern um media or media context. So on social media, uh, the quickness with which one can reply is often um, praised over this uh, being easy to speak to. One is uh, gets praises and likes and thumbs up and followed for uh, yeah being rather uh, difficult to speak to and contentious. So uh, not that there's never a, a place for speaking um, things which are hard to hear, there is, uh, and the Buddha acknowledged that. Um, but yeah, learning this skill, flexing this muscle of being suvacha, being easy to speak to. Um, before we continue with the simile of the saw, I just thought I'd introduce this um, discourse, the Anumana Sutta on inference, uh, which the early commentaries called the Bhikkhu Padimokha and said that a practitioner should review themselves three times a day uh, in this way to see if they're really as as suvacha, as easy to speak to as uh, the Buddha would like. So 
what venerables are the qualities that make one easy to speak to? So, and you can conceive of these since we're somewhat framing tonight's conversation um, in conversations about on specifically about war, if it comes up, but also just uh, the other various um, yeah, difficult conversation topics that come up. How do we uh, make ourselves one who is able to uh, not just pounce reactively on the people we're speaking to, but actually have the um, have the presence of mind and the skillfulness of speech to uh, speak with more more patience, more pause, um, and thus get a reputation for being easy to speak to and not uh, difficult to approach, difficult to speak to. So herein, the Buddha gives 16 different, um, yeah, <laughs> very common, exceedingly common, and almost, um, yeah, reading this list, you'll see yourself in them, or you'll certainly see uh, family members or friends or business associates in this past. So, you know, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha uh, elaborated all of these very specific and predictable ways that we are not easy to speak to the ways that we're reactive and um, yeah, unskillful with our speech. So here one does not, uh, one is not of evil wishes and in the thrall of evil desires. So uh, that's defined elsewhere as being someone who doesn't want to receive feedback in a public space. So that's an evil desire, but rather one is okay with receiving feedback um, and being spoken to in a public space in a public setting, that's difficult. Um, one does not exalt themselves or disparage others. One is not wrathful, overpowered by wrath. This is coda or just uh, anger. One is not wrathful or anger, uh, angry and a fault finder because of that wrath or anger. Um, they're not angry. And because of that anger, taking offense. So being easily triggered, easily uh, provoked. Uh, they're not angry, and because of that, uttering words which border on wrath. And, and I think if I was doing the translation, actually, I would put anger here. Coda is the word. It's it's less extreme than than wrath. That's quite um, quite strong. Whereas coda is yeah, just uh, it's angry. Um, so in this characteristic of uttering words which are bordering on anger. This is fascinating. I, I find this in myself. If if there's anger that's coming up, welling up, the heat is rising internally. <laughs> and if I say something from that space, even if what I were to say was to be transcribed and someone else was to read it and they would say, oh, that's just a totally neutral phrase. Um, there are ways of speaking and being passive aggressive with our uh, our our speech that um, is, is bordering on it's touching anger. Like the transcript of what we say, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily look like it's so angry, but, um, uh, it can be felt by the other person oftentimes, um, that what we're saying is, uh, yeah, totally inflamed uh, internally. So, and here when reproved, so this is uh, a setting of uh, receiving feedback, and this can happen when you're discussing views about war, or views about um, 
yeah, basically anything, anything that comes up, uh, we all have, it's we're we're trained in a Western education system to really, um, yeah, value our, you know, positions and opinions about things. And there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with that, but when we attach to them and when reproved or getting feedback about our views or our opinions about things, um, we oftentimes blurt out, um, and reprove the reprover say, who are you to give feedback to me? I'm going to give feedback to you when reproved or given feedback to you disparage the person who's speaking it to you, or you round on that reprover with more reproof, more feedback for them, or you shelve the question and uh, ask the reprover another question, which is, um, yeah, off point. So someone who's easy to speak to doesn't do that um, and does not show um, temper, ill will, and sulkiness. Um, so yeah, one is, is not harsh or spiteful, envious, treacherous, stubborn. And this last one, number 16, is uh, very interesting. So Pali is sanditi paramasi adana gahi dupati nisagi, just rolls off the tongue. It's just all of this uh, alliteration. One does not adhere tightly to one's own views or hold to them tenaciously or relinquish them. Um, they do relinquish them easily. They do not hold on to their views tightly um, or tenaciously, but they are able to, um, at least in the terms of the conversation, uh, know how to put them down when um, they don't need to be be held up. So that is definitely not a virtue, which Americans learn necessarily in university um, or really find uh, find value in. But the Buddha pointing to it here, I think, uh, is a great highlight. So, um, and I've certainly seen it with myself, my monastic friends and lay friends who are able to not adhere tightly to their own views, hold on to them tenaciously, but are able to relinquish them or at least not need to clench so tightly. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And um, it's good to learn how to talk about uh, virtues as being beautiful. Uh, And when you have friends, and hopefully all of you do, who embody uh, these things, embody being easy to speak to, you're readily able to bring that image to mind and say, yeah, that's yeah, regardless of the traditional beauty or handsomeness of this person, uh, this quality, um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's stunning. It's bright. It's, um, um, yeah, worthy of emulation. So those are the things that make one easy to speak to. Um, so that was a brief, (laughs) somewhat less than brief aside. Um, and we'll come back to the, uh, simile on the saw So here the Buddha says, uh, so practitioners, you should train yourselves. We will be easy to speak to. That is so uh, suvacho or sovacha uh, purely because we honor, respect, revere, worship, and venerate the Dhamma. That's how you should train yourself. So for many of you, I I don't know all of you. I know the ones who I do know. uh, Many of you do have an evolving um, relationship with the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And if you do, if you've got a shrine in your house and you are practicing or learning and seeing some benefit in in bowing and giving uh, 
honoring, respecting, revering, and practicing the gestures of, of respect and honor, um, then this is meaningful for you. If you don't have a relationship with the Dhamma, um, then maybe you could just replace that with truth here. Um, so I'll be easy to speak to uh, because I honor, respect, and venerate the, the truth of things. And how that might apply here when you're being challenged is from a neutral and cool point of view, uh, the extent of my view about things is absolutely not the full truth. The full truth is much more expansive than uh, how I'm seeing something. So um, yeah, and respecting that with humility. Um, that's what the Buddha is pointing to in this. For someone who does have a relationship with the Buddha and the Dhamma, um, this kind of training um, is quite fascinating. And it is a training and it's framed um, in the way of being an affirmation. So uh, yeah, what what is this, this Dhamma affirmation? Uh, the Buddha has... Uh, many of these instances where he says, thus practitioners, should you tra train yourselves? Evanhivo, bhikkave sikitabang. And we've actually got a link here to a whole book, which myself and another monk put together a long time ago uh, with every instance in the canon where the Buddha uses this, uh, what's called a pericope or a, a stock phrase of thus you should train yourselves. So the Buddha will say before he gives an affirmation, so practitioners, you should train yourselves and quote, it uses the, the poly equivalent of a quote, T. Um, we will be easy to speak to purely because we honor, respect, revere, worship, and venerate the Dhamma, unquote. That is how you should train yourselves. Um, so yeah, that's fascinating that the Buddha would give us these actual phrases, which uh, myself and many other practitioners I know have memorized these and why it's useful to memorize something like this is because in the heat of the moment, uh, when we're being challenged, it can be difficult to uh, remember our principles because um, the kind of the limbic system is going into fight mode and we forget the higher brain functions of the things that we honor, the higher truths that we uh, actually when we're more cool headed and um, yeah, coming from a more rational and, and uh, cool space, uh, the things that we value, like being able to listen to other people. Um, so here I go off uh, on the plate on the um, document here uh, to a little bit of a grammatical sidebar about a future passive participle. What does it mean that the Buddha would say should? Uh, and I don't think I'll go into that just, for time's sake, I might later if people are interested. Um, and it's the use of this future passive participle, the should. There are, yeah, you. Um, it does occur quite often in um, the uh, Buddhist discourses. So I think I'll skip that for the time being. Uh, and we can jump right in uh, because it's, <laughs> it's good to be able to uh, learn how to disconnect we're on a thought train and then, okay, coming back into the body, we'll do another mini meditations here. And with this one, I'll invite people to just bring your hands up in this, this gesture. Um, I think I've heard it called in English prayer hands. 
in Pali and Sanskrit, it's Anjali. And yeah, it's in, I think it's a, in the American um, yeah, gesture lexicon these days, gesture con. Um, so you can do this and yeah, you can with your eyes closed or not. Um, hands here coming into the body. Just practice and all say the words in case you have your eyes closed, but with hands here. And if you memorize this pericope, you memorize this affirmation, then uh, you can do it as well. And you can do this gesture in a uh, in a conflict. It does calm things down. So bringing the hands up with um, with the intention both to settle oneself, to calm oneself, to to listen. Just here. Feeling the hands. And here again, feeling the limitlessness of the hands. The eyes closed, there's no real delineation. There's no skin line, it doesn't seem. So this abundant, exalted, immeasurable perception that there doesn't need to be a limit. Not clinging or attaching to any limit. And just, I'll be easy to speak to purely because I honor, respect, revere, worship, and venerate the Dhamma. I'll be easy to speak to because I worship and venerate the Dhamma. So I heartily invite uh, people when we shift to a more uh, cerebral part of the session again, coming back to the texts, um, to just stay in the body, um, to stay with that embodiment, with whether it's in the hands or in the heart or uh, wherever, or the whole body, they just stay with that. And now, just to break things up, um, actually come to a Q&A period. So if anyone, yeah, we've covered a lot and covered a lot fairly quickly. Um, so just open it up. Um, people can put comments or questions in the chat or yeah, just raise your hand. So Vanessa, please. Hi. Um, I have a question about number 11 in the list. Um, it says one reproved succeeds in explaining their movements to the reprover. And it seems like partially it's out of my control whether they actually understand. But in that case, maybe success would be equanimity if they don't. Because succeed in explaining, I guess you'd have to understand what success would be measured by. Yeah, this is a this is a very good point, and um, 
yeah, that's actually, um, I'm actually not quite familiar with this translation that I posted. I'm just going to give a quick look. I believe that's from Bhante Sujato. I'll just look what I.B. Horner has there. Um, Because yeah, that seems like a very difficult thing to do is to gauge. um, Yeah, someone else's, actually that is I.B. Horner's translation. If anyone is actually clicking on those links, uh, I encourage you uh, to do so. But Sutta Central is great, and learning how to work with this framework is really helpful. Um, there's a lot there. Yeah, I apologize, Vanessa. I can't. Um, I can't actually find that. Um, but yeah, I'll keep giving it some thought. Might have a good response later. I'll see if I can find the poly. And if anyone else wanted to share their thoughts as well, thank you for the the question. Um, that one in particular does seem uh, difficult to do, especially if people are not really in a place to, to hear one another's um, when they're coming from such heat. So um, I, I'm probably mispronounce your name, but uh, MJ? Yeah, it's MJ. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I just had a um, experience that I wanted to get your feedback on with the Anjali um, mudra that I agree with is very calming and grounding and um, does tend to calm. But I had an experience with a conflict with a friend of a friend and in an effort to calm myself and my communication, I did this. And the response was um, a very negative reaction kind of it, it it increased their energy of discomfort and judgment. And so this actually um, kind of invited more attack and anger. So I, I just wanted to see if you had any response to that kind of response. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I've experienced the same thing, even in a monastery with another monk. Um, yeah, it seemed to like trigger them all the more. Um, uh so yeah, being able to predict that and, you know, the mind can be so tricky, you know, it can even be a passive aggressive, uh, you know, tool of, yeah, I know you're going to get annoyed at this, so I'm going to do it all the more. Um, but yeah, if one's intention really is to um, settle and calm a conflict uh, or a um, a conversation, then having the metacognition and the uh, the wisdom to actually think, you know, what would this person's reaction to this, this, um, this gesture be? And if that won't work, then um, other gestures with the body, like literally like stepping back or even sitting down. That's something with, um, with my monastic brothers, this probably wouldn't be so workable for most people, but in, the monasteries that I live at, uh, there aren't that many chairs, you know, in the monk spaces, it's just like a lot of space. And, you know, monks are like sitting on the ground or kneeling on the ground with one another. And um, I have found though, that if I'm having a standing up conversation, which turns into uh, a bit of a heated, um, a heated conversation, then actually saying, you know, I'm, I prefer, can we sit down on the ground? And uh, that does have a, um, a settling effect for the conversation. And so if you can do that, you know, take, um, shift the, uh, shift into a different stance, literally, uh, that, that can help, but being mindful about what might 
trigger people is, yeah. is always good. So yeah, thank you, MJ. Sure. Yeah, thank you. And is there anyone who, um, I can't see everyone, but if there's anyone in the back who, um, if you could actually, if people have questions either now or in the future, use the little uh, upper left hand, little hand like that. Um, I could see it easier that way. But if no one has any questions, then we can just go on. Um, there's a lot to cover in this sutta, so. Back to sharing screen. Okay, so we've uh, introduce this concept of a Dhamma affirmation, this thus should you train yourself. And we'll encounter uh, a few more of these throughout the whole uh, of the sutta. This is one of the suttas where this uh, particular pattern where the Buddha says, thus you should train yourself, occurs the most. Um, so the Buddha begins by talking about, he kind of just, this is still in the simile of the saw. Buddha says there are five uh, ways of speaking in which others, when speaking to you, or when you speaking to others, might speak. So one might speak at the right time or at the right, wrong time. And this is something which you just have to get a feel for and become uh, skilled at. Uh, the Buddha, in another discourse, talked about seven or eight, seven different types of intelligence uh, anyu or ways of knowing knowledge. And one of them is kalanyu or a temporal intelligence, knowing the right time for things. This is the time to engage in a conversation with someone. This is the time to, for me to step back actually in this conversation. Uh, this is the time for me to uh, give another perspective in this conversation, or this is the time for me definitely not to uh, assert my position on this topic, if my goal is both my own well-being and the other person's uh, well-being. And uh, hopefully, when we're interacting with other people, we can bring their well-being to mind as well, even when uh, when being challenged, being able to actually consider, um, yeah, if I'm engaging this person in a conversation, uh, having this in the back of one's mind, I want to learn from this this conversation. But if I have feel like I have anything that's actually valuable to say, I also genuinely want the other person to be able to hear it. So uh, paying attention to the right time for that is good. But you can only take, um, yeah, take um, uh, account for, take um, responsibility for your side of the equation. So uh, when I'm speaking, I'll try to speak at the right time, but other people might come to me at the wrong time. Uh, either they're angry and it's not 
they're not speaking coherently or they're speaking angry and they're speaking super coherently. Uh, but the anger is clouding their own judgment. Um, or it's just, yeah, it's not a good time for me. They're coming up to me at the wrong time. People can talk, uh, come up to me or they might speak according to fact or not according to fact. Um, and yeah, when we speak, uh, this is one of the precepts. I'll try to speak that which is true, but other people might not necessarily be keeping to that principle. And even if they are, they might be reporting things which are not factual. There's so much, so much, uh, so many sources of information these days and um, so little fact checking that is done. And um, it's so easy to go with our own biases and, and not do uh, fact checking about things. So it's very common that other people might speak to us in ways which are not according to fact, not factual. People can speak and we can speak either gently or harshly. And for the most part, uh, part of the third aspect of right speech, which is refraining from harsh speech, um, the Buddha did encourage uh, learning how to speak gently, sanha, uh, learning not how to uh, how to not speak harshly. Uh, but uh, there are occasions when the Buddha did speak harshly, when his uh, his cousin Devadatta was going to cause a schism in the sangha. He spoke harshly. Um, there are occasions where a teacher needs to speak harshly to their student to uh, avoid harm or when a parent needs to speak harshly to their child to avoid some kind of danger so this isn't this isn't as black and white as the uh the training on speaking factually on not lying um speaking gently is a good training but even better is learning how to not speak harshly and knowing if and when there is an occasion for speaking harshly, um, but not coming from uh, a place of ill will. But other people, that's our business, but other people, very normal, very, very normal for people to speak harshly. Another translation could be roughly or, um, yeah, just, yeah, you know how, how people talk. Um, it, can get, it can get rough sometimes. People can speak or we can speak on what is connected with the goal. This is atta, uh, which is connected with um, uh, the goal or that which is beneficial, or they can speak unbeneficially. Um, yeah, that's probably a better translation here. They can speak in a way which is beneficial or unbeneficial. And we ourselves can try to only say things which are beneficial. Uh, the Buddha was once asked, um, uh, yeah, would you ever speak that which is um, untrue? And the Buddha says, no. And the Buddha is asked then, uh, this is the uh, Bodhi Raja Kumara Sutta in the Majjhima I believe. Um, but the Buddha is then asked, would you ever speak that which is uh, unbeneficial? And the Buddha says, no. And the Buddha said. occasions when um, somewhat appearingly harsh speech is is a skillful means. And certainly other people just, you know, talk about all sorts of meaningless stuff a lot of the time. Um, or people can speak with a mind of friendliness or meta or a mind full of 
uh, inner hatred or secret hatred, dos antara, inner, inner hate, inner ill will. So for ourselves, we can try to speak from this place of the metta, chitta, um, but yeah, others can come from dosa. They can come from this dvesha, this hatred, this uh, ill will. And the Buddha says that regardless, so whether someone comes up to us in any of these 10 different ways, here practitioners, you should train yourself regardless of that, regardless of if they come up to us at the wrong time, uh, talking things that aren't true and they're speaking harsh and it's unbeneficial and they're full of hate. Still, you should train yourselves. Neither will our minds become uh, perverted is the word here, but it's literally will flip. Neither will our minds flip. They won't become otherwise. That is uh, lose their balance. Nor will we utter speech, uh, not an evil speech. This is um, yeah, unwholesome speech, but kindly and compassionate. We will dwell with a mind of loving kindness, a mind of friendliness, of metta, devoid of hatred. And we will abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And beginning with them, we will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. Unquote. This is how you should train yourselves, practitioners. So for anyone who is familiar with, um, say, the chanting books of the Western Sangha, so this... Um, Amaravati students of monasteries in the lineage of Ajahn Chah. Um, part of this stock phrase occurs there. So if people have spent any time around monasteries, you're learning uh, this affirmation, this um, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That's how you should train yourself. So that's the general pattern. Uh, but then the Buddha proceeds to give uh, four amazing similes, um, which each of which are very powerful meditative uh, tools to, to keep in mind. So the Buddha says, so suppose someone were to come along with a shovel in basket and might speak thus, I will make this great earth not be earth. So they dig here and there, and they toss it here and there. They spit here and there. They urinate here and there, thinking, be without earth, be without earth. What do you think about this, practitioners? Could that person make this great earth be without earth? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because the earth is great, Lord. The earth is deep. It is immeasurable. It is not easy to make the earth be without earth. That person will eventually get wary and frustrated. So amazing, amazing simile. And the Buddha then continues, even so, practitioners, there are these five ways of speaking, which others, when they speak to you, might speak. So someone comes up to you with their verbal hoe and their verbal basket, determined to uh, basically dig you up. And uh, they might speak in a way which is untrue and it's not kind, and it's not the right time, and it's unbeneficial, and they're full of hate, but still, you should practice and train yourselves thus. The same introductory, neither will our minds become perverted or flip, nor will we utter an evil speech, but kindly and compassionate, we will dwell with a mind of loving kindness, devoid of hatred, and we will abide pervading that person 
with a mind imbued with loving kindness and beginning with them, we will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness like the earth. This is an insertion into that stock phrase, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train yourselves, practitioners. So here we'll jump right into another mini meditation and bringing this principle of earthiness, of suddenness into the body and specifically ask people to bring your attention to either your root. So, uh, or let's say, bring your attention to that which is connected to the floor or that which is grounded. If you're sitting on a chair, that can be your feet or it can be your buttocks, that which is just connected with the floor, that which is most most grounded where you're sitting or if you're sitting on the floor and just feeling this whole expanse of body contacting floor. softening when the mind is here knowing this touch knowing this feel of body on floor body on chair establishing the mind there but here again not creating boundaries not creating a limit to the mind but instead abiding as the stock phrase, the affirmation goes, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness like the earth, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. the center of awareness at that spot, but no parameter, no rim to this sphere of awareness. Just letting that goodwill just emanate and radiate. Nice. It's good. It's good to be able to practice with um, moving attention around the body. Uh, Ajahn Mahabua, one of the teachers in the Thai forest tradition, uh, when talking about mindfulness of the body, said that you can just go on tour, just go on tour, go on vacation around the body. You can take this whole fathom long body and just explore, just go on vacation in the body. Um, I've always appreciated that instruction and uh, learning to be flexible with where one directs one's attention and learning how to uh, place the center of awareness at different parts of the body and seeing what that does to uh, one's 
one's awareness. So we'll continue and the next simile is one of empty space. So practitioners, so suppose there was a person that might come along bringing black or yellow or dark green or crimson dye. So basically paint, someone comes along with paint thinking, and they're speaking in this way, I shall draw pictures in space, making pictures appear here and there. What do you think about this, practitioners? Could that person uh, delineate a material shape in space? Could they draw anything? Um, no, Lord. What is the reason for this? It is, Lord, that this space is formless and invisible. Um, this There should be a not. It is not easy to draw pictures there. That person will eventually get wary and frustrated. So someone comes along and tries to paint empty space. There's nowhere for the, the paint to, to land. So even so, practitioners, there are these five ways of speaking in which others can speak to you. Someone comes up with their paintbrush. They think they know you. They think you, they know your position um, about whatever it is, but um, it's not the right time. And you can train in this other way, um, as we've been saying. Neither will my mind flip, nor will I utter evil speech, but kindly and compassionate, I'll dwell with the mind of loving kindness, devoid of hatred, and I'll abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness and beginning with them abide pervading the all-encompassing world with the mind imbued with loving kindness like empty space abundant exalted immeasurable without hostility and without ill will this is how you should train yourselves so back to uh, another mini meditation and here see if you can bring your attention to the head And here, see if you can, this might be a new meditation for some, but one taught by Douglas Harding called On Having No Head, which is basically a perception where you realize that within your visual field, you don't see your own head. It just brings, it's a, it's a perception of empty space, which uh, uses the visual field to uh, get out of one's own way and stop uh, imagining a head. So coming to this felt sense of being inside the head, behind the eyes, but not limited to being behind the eyes, not a tiny little homunculus that's chained up behind your eyes and your brain. But coming from this spaciousness and what does loving kindness feel like? coming from here. And here, noticing that there don't need to be limits or boundaries. You can feel the forehead or the back of the head, but awareness is bigger than that. Biting, pervading the all-encompassing world with the mind imbued with loving kindness like empty space, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will.
Nice, another nice little peak, peak meditation, peak experience. Looking at this uh, open, open mind. And the next simile, we have uh, the Buddha talking about um, the Ganges River, talking about water. So suppose, practitioner, that a person comes along bringing a burning grass torch. They might speak thus, I, with this burning grass torch, will set fire to the river Ganges. I will make it scorch up. What do you think about this? Could that person with the burning grass torch set fire to the river's Ganges and make it uh, go ablaze? No, Lord. Why is that? It is, Lord, that the river Ganges is deep, immeasurable. It's not easy to set it on fire with a grass torch. And that person will just get tired, wearied, frustrated. So it is that someone might come up to you with these five ways of speech. They've got a grass torch that is their opinions, their views. Um, and they might be they might be accurate. They might be accurate, but they're coming with uh, from a place of inner hatred. Um, and it's the wrong time. Or maybe it's the right time, but they're coming from a place, uh, they're speaking harshly. It's actually a good time for you. It would be the best time. It's the time for them to give feedback to you, but uh, they're speaking harshly and um, it might be true, but they're speaking harshly and with hatred. So how do you respond? In any of these 10 ways of speaking, you should train yourselves. Neither will our minds flip nor will we utter evil speech, but kindly and compassionate, we will dwell with a mind of loving kindness, devoid of hatred. And we will abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Beginning with them, pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, like the Ganges River, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So let's do some <laughs> more keeping coming back to the body. Uh, coming back to the body. And with a, a mini meditation, uh, I've been suggesting you can close your eyes. I've been closing my eyes, but um, the more you practice with these, uh, the less you need to close your eyes. You can still maintain awareness inwardly with your eyes open. So coming to the feeling behind the navel in the Dantian, if you're familiar with that, that term from Chinese, anatomy. So attention behind the navel and here, not paying attention to boundaries, not creating barriers, limits of this is me and that's the rest of the world in front, behind. But pervading the all-encompassing world with the mind from this behind the navel, with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Like the Ganges River, like this cool, deep water, can't set me on fire. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. It's unfortunate. I think most um, uh, most Americans have kind of lost, most modern people have lost the ability or real interest to uh, memorize, but it's a huge part of monastic training, has been since the time of the Buddha. 
And uh, memorizing this would not be a waste of your time. Um, especially just, and you can memorize as much or as little as you want, but having something, having a go-to, a response rather than um, whatever immediate thought reacts to that person's provocation, having a stock phrase actually starting with this, start with just these three words, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Just start with those three. Just memorize those three, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Come back into the body, whether it's yeah, coming back to the floor, the sense of earth, being undig-upable, or coming back to this being no head, to the empty space behind the eyes, coming back to that abundant, exalted, immeasurable inside the body. Paint, your paint won't land on me. Your perceptions of who I am and what my views are it doesn't doesn't need to land empty space doesn't doesn't land doesn't sit doesn't stick coming to um yeah being like the water coming abundant exalted immeasurable and the final simile that comes with this um uh dhamma resolution this dhamma affirmation is a cat skin bag and i'll just read the simile and then have gotten some feedback that uh yeah, it's, it might be a little bit, a little bit rough, but practitioners suppose there was a cat skin bag. And if that's, if you don't like that idea, I don't, I don't really like it. Um, it does, it is striking. Um, but just imagine a well-worn silk bag that was rubbed, well-rubbed, very well-rubbed, or how about pleather? You got a pleather bag, soft, silky, rid of rustling and crackling. And a person was come up with a stick or stone and says, I'm going to make this soft cat skin bag, this pleather bag, rustle and crackle with this sticker stone. What do you think? Could that person make it crackle? Uh, no. Why is that? Because this cat skin bag is rubbed, well rubbed, very well rubbed, soft, silky, rid of rustling and crackling. It's not easy to make it rustle or crackle. Uh, that person is just going to get tired and wary and frustrated. Um, so too, someone can come up to you and try to provoke you with all these different types of speech, but you can train um, to have a mind, oops, a mind that's like a cat skin bag. Like a cat skin bag. Um, and this is just, again, coming back into the body. And we can begin the meditation. Uh, coming into the full body, the full body now, and just relaxing. Why the, why the cat skin bag? image I find uh, striking and useful is that, um, yeah, it's uh, a skin which no longer has any life to it. It's It's been declawed and it's been defanged. Um, uh, yeah, this is a, a term in, in Thai for someone who's actually suvacha, for someone who is easy to speak to. It's as if they've had their, their fangs and their claws removed. They've been defanged and declawed. And um, I feel like that's what is being pointed to here. So with awareness in the full body, and this can be the single point, this can be the center. But just from here, from this center, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, like a cat skin bag, like a soft, unrustlable, 
bag, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. Whole body, just abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Time moves so quickly. Uh, just this last uh, very, this uh, simile doesn't come along with a, an affirmation or a mini meditation, although it uh, probably should. Um, this is the very striking conclusion that the Buddha comes to. So practitioners suppose that there were uh, low down thieves and they might carve someone up, they might carve you up limb by limb with a double handed saw. Yet even then, whoever sets their mind with enmity or anger. They, for that reason, uh, is not a practitioner of his teachings. Um, so should you train yourselves, will be uh, ones whose minds will not flip, will not utter evil speech, but kindly and compassionate will dwell with the mind of friendliness, devoid of hatred, and will dwell having suffused the other person with the mind of friendliness and beginning with them, dwell abide, uh, pervading the whole encompassing world with a mind imbued with love and kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. And with that, the Buddha says that, yeah, if you take these affirmations to heart, and if you learn how to embody this skill, then there's nothing, there's no type of speech, gross or subtle, which you couldn't endure. So uh, yeah, leave the formal presentation there and open it up for for questions or or thoughts. Would love to hear people's people's thoughts on this. Andrew, please. Hi, thank you for the teachings. Um, one thing that was coming to mind as um, as you were speaking, especially in the second part, was just um, how kind of how mindful, how aware, and how present we need to be in order to even notice when we're being kind of like triggered by somebody who's coming up and speaking to us in a provocative way like that. Um, just seem it seems like that's I don't know a good first step in the battle so to speak is just being being aware that somebody's speaking to you and being aware that you're becoming um, um, kind of triggered so just a challenge to start with yeah 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 very true thank you for highlighting that um, yeah and for myself having um periods of meditation um in the morning and in the evening especially in the morning it kind of primes it, it does prime the meditation or the mindfulness pump to some extent for me uh, a certain type of mindfulness uh, or metacognition and specifically practicing with these um these affirmations uh, that book thus you should train yourself of which there's a, a link to in there there's a list of about 75 of these different affirmations. And I know monks, I know one monk who will open up the book and um, just read one and contemplate it each day, a different one. 
Uh, I know other monks myself, I've gone through periods actually reading that whole list and kind of um, priming myself verbally with these thoughts, these aspirations that they are in line with how I want to live my life. Because it's challenging, as you as you say, in the moment. But if you've somewhat rehearsed what might happen, um, that can go a long way. I <laughs> there is one of these other types of intelligence called pugalanyu, which means literally knowledge of persons. So this is somewhat of an interpersonal intelligence, um, or a um, yeah, a, an intelligence around personality types and. Uh, just having a sense for who might trigger you each day. There was a period when I was newly ordained, when there was uh, a monk who he could push my buttons. I didn't even know I had buttons. He pushed buttons that I, I had no idea I even had. And uh, he was so good at it and um, is a great friend still, but, and he could still push my buttons, but um, it was extremely predictable that pretty much, almost every day because small community and you see each other's and we have this monk locker room where the monks kind of um, do various different things. Um, But I would see him every day and almost every day be triggered. But fortunately we live in a forest and I had at that time about a 20 minute walk down from my hut to the the meditation hall every morning. And during that time I had a a little uh, ritual. I think I even wrote it down in a little, (laughs) a little book. uh, um, And uh, it was basically all of my um, ways to calm myself down in preparation for meeting this monk and being uh, triggered by what he was going to say to me. So you can do that. Um, But uh, yeah, it does, it does require mindfulness beforehand. Um, So I I would uh, just as takeaway skills, just those three words, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, and really learning how to be back in the body. If any one of those particular um, uh, touch points was especially meaningful or um, uh, touching for you, then uh, yeah, coming back to that and and cultivating skill and in, in staying with that. So, um, and for Vanessa, I was actually able to look up the Pali uh, Bante Sujato's translation for that one um, is not it's. Um, not being able, you know, the translation that I had on that paper was to be able to successfully, um, yeah, relate account for your actions. Whereas Monte Sujato has being, um, uh, able to just try to account for the evidence. So, um, being willing to engage on some level with, um, what the other person is saying and, that said, I do think there is a space for, um, certainly in our closest relationships, for saying, um, you know, I, 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 it's not a good time for me to try to address uh, this. I would like to, and I would, I will try to, uh, you know, express why I did explain myself uh, later. But um, it's just, things are just too hot right now, so. Just, I think what that point is, is going towards is, uh, the willingness to engage in further conversation and to, uh, account for what you did. So is that, does that make more sense, Vanessa? Or did you figure out another possible meaning for it? Well, I think success could be measured. I mean, I would hope that it could be measured also by the, 
the other person understanding your whatever motivations you had that brought up the conflict. But oftentimes they they may or may not um, understand your motivation. So maybe success in that case could be measured by your equanimity. If if they don't understand, if you're not successful in relating why or your motivations, then maybe success could be measured by your equanimity or, I don't know. The word success was interesting there for that. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Um, and I may not have even explicitly brought in equanimity, but I appreciate that you did so because this virtue which I was pointing to, this sovachasa, suvacho, of being easy to speak to, uh, easy to give feedback to, um, is one which is largely equanimity, mm-hmm. especially when we're being provoked. Um, you know, all you can do is be equanimous. I mean, when one gains skill at that and kind of softens, um, there is a whole edge of the suvacha easy to speak to spectrum, which is, it's not just, you know, a wall of equanimity, but it's actually, um, yeah, a whole pool of, of softness and receptivity. Um, so, but again, doing as much as you can. Hey, yeah. Deborah, please. Thank you so much, Ajahn. This is, this has been wonderful. Um, and, and incredibly helpful. The, um, the part about being someone easy to talk to is so profound. I actually have a new colleague who is like the easiest, gentlest person to talk to. And I don't even know this person barely, but I just makes this person makes you feel so comfortable and safe. And, and, you know, and maybe if I'm feeling uptight about something, just the presence of that person kind of brings it down. So. That's like a really, I think, a really powerful thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we should strive for that as well, to be that as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, you can see it in some people right away. Uh, some people you meet them and uh, it's obvious they're they're easy to speak to and bring things up to them easily. Um, I also appreciate um, say with that monk that I was mentioning, you know, I've lived with, I've lived very closely with him for years and years and years. And, um, I feel like there's also an aspect of this, uh, being easy to speak to, which one only sees over or which is differently gauged by over time, like, and over pressure. So I've seen this monk responded actually to that exact same monk who like presses my buttons. This other monk uh, is totally, it seems unbutton pressable. He just, I've seen him react so coolly. And that just brought my whole conception of what it, it means to be Suvacho to a whole nother level. It's like, yeah, I see this scene very clearly. It was in the monk's locker room. It was this very um, triggering monk and the monk who uh, this other uh, friend was, yeah, not not pressed. So, um, yeah, very memorable. I hope everybody has people in their life like that. Yeah, thank you, Deborah, for bringing that up. Hey, Roy, please. Hey, Ajahn. I found your comment, uh, the, the quote from uh, Rangpur Mahapura to be very interesting, uh, the quote about uh, taking a vacation in your body. Uh, 
would love to learn a little more about the context. But also, uh, Ajahn Chah is r- rumored to have said, uh, focus on your breath because it'll take you a lifetime to uh, learn it. Uh, you know, you can proceed to your body, but, you know, there's so much more to be done with the breath. So was he talking about the level of depth of focus that would be preferred? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I don't remember that Ajahn Chah quote, uh, but absolutely. I mean, the more, hopefully, everyone here has gotten a glimpse. You know, most Westerners have practiced some breath meditation, and hopefully everyone's gotten some taste of that, that the breath becomes a very, very subtle, very, very nuanced, and very uh, intimate friend over time uh, when you learn different ways of breathing. And um, yeah, I can't imagine that there would be an end to how subtle and profound that relationship could get. And I mean, it's even the Buddha himself, you know, was using breath meditation when he attained enlightenment, according to the Theravada canon. And yeah, for a little bit more context with the Ajahn Mahabua quote, uh, before I turn it over to Rob, we'll have to wrap up fairly soon. But um, yeah, the Ajahn Mahabua word, he quote, he uses Thai word Tio, which is a very specific type of vacationing. It's like, and it's strange that a forest monk would say this, but you can go Tio in the body. And Tio is like, you get in a van and you like travel around to um, like a, a resort and the monk wouldn't be going to a resort, but basically it's this idea that you can kind of cycle around in your body and explore it and explore how the breath interacts with the body. He was also very um, big on speaking to that relationship between body and breath. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Rob. Yeah. So Rob, please take it away. And um, it's yeah, been a pleasure to, sit with all of you tonight and um, good to talk about these things. Thank you very much, Ajahn, for joining us. Um, I'm just putting one thing in here in the chat. I just want to mention uh, that tonight's class is a Donna-based class. It's offered freely, Uh, but uh, if you would like to make a donation uh, to help support the Saudi Center and to... um, support uh, uh, Ajahn Kovilo. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the chat here uh, if you'd like to make a donation. Also, it'll be an email that uh, goes out um, as well. Uh, so hold on there. Just putting that in the chat. And uh, with that, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thank you very much, Ajahn, for being here. Uh, just so you know, uh, Ajahn's going to do a day long with us in person in March sometime. Uh, keep your eye open for that. We'll probably do registration in Jan- open up in January or so. Um, otherwise, uh, hope to see you next. Oh, yes, go ahead. And just uh, the announcement about next week. So Ajahn Nisabo will be here at this same time uh, next Thursday. So I, I, that, that was going to be my, oh. my my very, very next thing. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yes. So hopefully see you all next week. Yeah. And, and also just any donations made, I guess, they're, they wouldn't be to me, but they're just to the Clear Mountain Monastery Project we're starting in Seattle. So, yeah. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>